is there an enemy to faith that is more deadly and more pernicious than others? There are plenty of enemies to faith, but is there one that is particularly deadly? I submit to you that there is, and Jesus is going to talk to us about that and give us great insight into this enemy of faith. And he's going to do it here in John chapter 5, verses 39 through 44. And then before we get to that text, we have to look at the text that Peter read to get our context. So let's do that. Let's look at the context here, the setting that we are in before we get to verses 39 through 44. As we come to this text, we find ourselves right in the middle of one of Jesus's many interactions with the religious leaders. In the book of John, it seems like he's always bumping up against the religious leaders, and this is no exception. And he first mentions that John had testified in his, uh, to him and because he's giving the religious leaders the basis on which they can believe in him. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true, meaning that there needed to be in the Jewish expectation, there need to be uh, two or three witnesses. He says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. What is he saying? What is he wanting to demonstrate? Jesus is trying to give these religious leaders the basis on which they can believe in him. He says, there's another who bears witness to me. You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Now, Jesus didn't need the testimony of John. He was a self-authenticating God man, the son of God, but he was providing the religious leaders the evidence they needed to believe. Verse 34, not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things in order that you might be saved. Jesus cared about their salvation and he was laying down evidence so that they might believe. But there was a greater testimony than the testimony of John. What was it? Look down in verse 36. He says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish the very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The Father had given him works to do. These very works provided the ground, the evidence for them to believe that he was the Messiah, the one sent from heaven. And the father had even endorsed Jesus's identity from a word from heaven, from a voice from heaven and a ba- during his baptism. But the Jewish leaders did not and would not recognize it. What was the problem? What was the problem? Verse 38 tells us, and you do not have his, I'm sorry, backing up to verse 37. He says, and the father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. They had never heard his voice in that they had never understood what the Father had spoken from heaven in giving this endorsement to Jesus and his ministry. Verse 38, And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. Now, I don't take that statement to mean that They didn't believe Jesus, therefore, they didn't believe in Jesus, therefore, they didn't have God's word abiding in them. Rather, I take that to mean that their unbelief was proof that they didn't have God's word abiding in them. Although they they had made it their life's work to pour over the text of scripture, that scripture had never made it into their souls. And the evidence that they were bereft of God's word truly abiding in their souls was the fact that they did not recognize the Messiah as he stood 
right in front of them. But verses 39 through 44 give us deeper insight into the the problem with the religious leader's spiritual condition. We need to ask ourselves why it was that the word of God was not getting down into the souls of these religious leaders. Why was that the case? What was it that was keeping the Pharisees and the scribes from seeing the Jesus that stood before them as the Jesus that their Old Testament scriptures had clearly testified to? What was the deep down problem? Was it that they had... uh, Was it that they didn't have sufficient access to the scriptures? No, that wasn't the problem. Was it that they didn't have sufficient time to study the scriptures? No, that wasn't the problem either. Was it because they didn't have enough evidence to demonstrate conclusively that Jesus was the Christ? No. They had sufficient access to the scripture. They had plenty of time to study and to read the scriptures and plenty of evidence to demonstrate that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. What then was keeping them from believing in Jesus? One answer. It was pride. And not just some generic pride. You know, we throw that word a lot around a lot these days, even in Christian circles. We talk about pride and putting pride to death and don't be proud and What kind of pride is he talking about here? What was the nature of this pride that was keeping the Jewish leaders from believing in Jesus? Specifically, it was a love for personal glory. It was a love for the praise of men. They loved the praise and recognition and adoration and accolades that came from other people. They wanted to be known for their religious accomplishments, their spiritual insight, their good works, their position and status as leaders and teachers in Israel. Jesus himself in Matthew 22 or Matthew 23, rather, even said that they did all of their works in order to be noticed by other people. That was the direction of their life. But although our passage begins in verse 39, I want us to look at verse 44 first, because this verse unlocks the meaning and the implications of this passage. Verse 44 says this. It's a rhetorical question from Jesus. He says, how can you believe? See, the problem was faith. They weren't believing in Jesus. Jesus is going to reveal why it was that they weren't believing. He asked them this rhetorical question. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? What was the problem? As we'll see in more detail in a little bit, Jesus is making it clear that faith in him and the pursuit of the praise of men cannot reside in the same soul. That they are so antithetical that if you make it your life's work to get praise from people, you will not be able to believe in Jesus for salvation. But having seen Jesus's point here about pride and how it affects faith let's back up to verse 39 now and we'll come back to verse 44 because we have more to say about it but we'll just open it here to give us kind of the key to understanding this passage and ask what kinds of effects what kinds of spiritual effects does a love for man's praise have on us it's an important question it's a massive question i hope that you'll see by the end of today that pride is truly the enemy of your soul and the enemy of intimacy with Jesus Christ. 
what kind of spiritual effects does a love of man's praise have on us? And you can look in the first point here. You have it in your bulletins or you have it on the app. Number one, a love for personal glory or the praise of man. If you want to insert that, a personal glory kind of sounds weird. You can just insert praise of man. A love for personal glory skews your interpretation of Scripture. A love for personal glory skews your interpretation of Scripture. First, I want us to notice in verse 39. We notice that the Pharisees and the scribes, they were searching the Scriptures diligently. Now, why were they engaged in such uh, serious biblical study? And it was serious. They memorized huge portions of the Bible, pouring over the text of Scripture hours upon hours a day, talking about its interpretation. Why were they engaged in such serious study? Jesus tells us, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. What does Jesus mean by in them? Well, I think... It likely means that the scribes and Pharisees believed that the way to gain eternal life was merely through, and, and final acceptance with, with God was through the process of reading and studying the scriptures. The more steady, the better you're standing with God. In fact, one collection of Jewish rabbinic writings at the time of, that was uh, around during the time of Christ actually testifies to this reality and how the Pharisees and the religious leaders understood their study of scripture and how it would attain to eternal life. Quoting from one of these rabbinic teachings says, quote, and if one acquires for himself knowledge of Torah, he has acquired life in the world to come as though just the mere intellectual gathering of biblical facts would set you right with God. Why was this an attractive way to gain eternal life? What's so attractive about that? Well, it provides you a grounds for boasting, doesn't it? You can boast before God and you can boast before man, which the Pharisees were quite good at. They boasted about their knowledge of scripture, not that that scripture was having any effect at all on their inward spiritual lives, but they could boast about what they knew of God's word. But notice the interpretational problems that came along with this kind of approach to scripture. Look at what Jesus says. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This deep-seated love for personal glory was actually shielding them from correctly interpreting the scriptures and using the scriptures the way they were meant to be used. The Old Testament used and understood rightly would lead a person to see Jesus as the Christ. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, the sacred writings that Timothy had access to could give you wisdom for faith and salvation in Jesus Christ. Yet, because their diligence was driven by a desire for recognition by others, they were unable to interpret the scriptures correctly and thus unable to see the person to whom the scriptures pointed. Pride. Specifically, a desire for man's praise and recognition threw a veil over the Bible and kept them from understanding it. And the same will happen to us today. The spiritual axiom, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, applies to every aspect of our lives, including biblical interpretation. A person's inability... This is key. A person's inability to 
understand the scripture is not ultimately an evidence problem. It's not ultimately an intelligence problem. It's not even, get this, a diligence problem. It's a glory problem. If you love the glory that comes from people, you will not read the Bible correctly. What an important reminder for all of us today. You can pour over biblical texts 10 hours a day and not get a lick of spiritual nourishment from that activity if you're coming to your study with a desire to impress others with your biblical acumen or gain applause for all you know about the Bible. You can sit under teaching week in and week out and read the Bible every day and still end up a heretic because you are seeking biblical knowledge in order to gain prominence in the church or the praise in the recognition of the world. The pursuit of personal glory will always, mark that, always skew your interpretation of scripture as it did to the leaders in Israel. But let's keep digging. Let's keep digging into Jesus' words. Let's keep digging into the wisdom of Jesus in this passage and ask why this is the case. Why is it that pride and this passion for to make a name for ourselves keeps us from understanding the Bible? Number two, verse 41. A love for personal glory makes Jesus unattractive. A love for personal glory, a love for the praise of man makes Jesus unattractive to you. Right after Jesus says this, he says, you search the scriptures, you're not getting it. They bear witness about me. You're not seeing me. I'm here before you, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says this, I do not receive glory from people. And sometimes Jesus does this. You have to sit back and go, how does that follow? It follows. You just have to give it some thought and reflection to dig in to the scripture. What does this phrase have to do with what he just said? I don't receive glory from others. What does it have to do with them not seeing him as the Messiah? Why were the Jewish leaders not coming to Jesus and seeing him as attractive? He was the son of God. He was truth embodied. He was grace embodied. What was it that was repulsive to the uh, Jewish leaders? And Jesus tells us right here, I do not receive glory from people. That's what was repulsive. That's why they didn't come to him. That's why they didn't want him. Jesus was genuinely humble. And, you know, this word humble, I am so tired of turning on the news and tired of reading articles about humility Rarely does anyone ever define what humility really is. When we think of humility, we usually think of someone who's soft-spoken, nice, self-depreciating, unopinionated, never really making any waves. Oh, he or she is very humble. But this is a far cry, far cry from genuine humility. True humility is God-centered, and Jesus exemplifies it perfectly. Here's what it is. Jesus seeks the glory of God above all things. He wholeheartedly submits himself to the Father's will to the point where it will cost him everything, even his own life. He lives for the glory of God and the benefit of other people alone. He did not seek his own glory. He did not promote himself. And he doesn't care about other people's opinions of him. 
the Pharisees did not want a leader like that. Why? Why would you reject a leader like that? Why would you reject a leader who comes to you and says, I don't seek glory from people? Because you don't want to be like that. You don't want to be someone who doesn't seek glory from people. Why? The reason why they were so repulsed by Jesus is because who he is and what he represents and what he calls us to is specifically the renunciation of our pursuit of the praise of men and personal glory. That is precisely what Jesus calls us to. And as we'll see in a little bit, it's precisely what his cross calls us to. Now, even the disciples had a problem with this. They, they really struggled with this. If you want to turn back over just briefly to uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and following. The, the, the disciples struggled. And I'm so thankful for the, the, the scriptures and telling us about the disciples because we, we see from them that Jesus can overcome the, the pride and the, the arrogance, the ignorance that we struggle with. Verse 31, Jesus is going to tell them that he's going to suffer and die. He's predicting his suffering and death. Peter, of course, doesn't like that. And why doesn't he like that? Well, because the suffering and death of Messiah sure doesn't sound like a triumphant king, does it? And so he rebukes Jesus and says, that's not going to happen. It says, verse 32, he said to him plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. No, Jesus, I'm <laughs> no, no, no. You don't, apparently you don't understand the scriptures. Remember, the Messiah is supposed to be a conquering, triumphant king. And the suffering, that doesn't really play into that plan so well. So let me correct you. Irony of ironies. And Jesus, seeing how disastrous this could be to the disciples, rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. But then notice how he follows this rebuke of peter notice the words he uses and calling the crowd to him in his disciples he said if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul and what can a man give in return for his soul and we usually see these warnings as a, as a reference to material wealth, you can gain the whole world. Self-preservation, you can save yourself, but that'll ultimately forfeit your eternal life. And these things are probably included in Jesus' warning. I don't want to take from, away from that. But notice specifically how he follows up these warnings. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father and his holy angels. What persuades people from staying away from Jesus? What is it? People are afraid of what others will think of them if they really follow Jesus. Maybe that resonates with you. Maybe that was you before you came to Christ. I know that was me. I was embarrassed of the church. I was embarrassed to be around Christians. I was ashamed of Jesus. People refuse to come to Christ because to do so means that they must give up living for the praise and admiration of the people around them and to be willing to bear the reproach that Jesus bore. 
Now, by God's grace, the, the disciples continued to yield to Jesus' call to give up this pursuit of personal glory, but it was a painful process. <laughs> uh, even after Jesus foretells his death again in verse uh, 30 of chapter 9, immediately following that, they're discussing on their way who was the greatest. So Jesus had a lot of sin to overcome in the disciples. And even, even after that, uh, he, he re- corrects their thinking then. Immediately after that, they say to uh, Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. He was not on our team. They were upset because someone was doing something who wasn't a part of their team, and they were jealous. So Jesus had to continue to chip away at this inherent pride and love of praise. And as we know, it was eventually overcome in the 11 disciples by God's grace. But in the case of the religious leaders, however, they continued to be repulsed by Jesus. They did not want to become like him because he was genuinely and God-centeredly humble. Now, don't take this to mean that the Pharisees didn't try to be humble. They tried it. They tried to be humble. But the problem was, is they wanted to be praised for the humility. Listen to Jesus' instructions in Matthew chapter um, 6, in the Sermon on the Mount. Interesting thing here about fasting. What what were they doing? Jesus tells his disciples, don't be like the the Pharisees. He says, and when, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and so that their fasting may be seen by others fasting was supposed to be coupled with genuine heartfelt seeking after god and repentance before the lord but the religious leaders were so ensnared by a love for man's praise they twisted an act of humility to be a platform for their own glory even in humility pride is pernicious we need the spirit of god jesus's life jesus's teaching And most importantly, his means of salvation was utterly repulsive to the religious leaders. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Why is that? Why is it foolishness? Because the cross stands against our bent to get glory for ourselves. And it shows us conclusively that we are worthy of no glory whatsoever. The cross shows us that we are so sinful, so out of touch with what God requires of us, so lost and so rebellious, so internally corrupt that God's own son must take our place on a Roman instrument of execution to bear all of God's wrath in our place so that we can be saved by pure grace. The cross destroys all grounds for human boasting. That is why the word of the cross is foolishness to the natural mind because the natural mind is bent, utterly bent on getting glory for itself, on creating a name for itself. Number three, what else does pride do? What else does this deadly disposition do, this deadly sin Verse 42, a love for personal glory hardens your heart toward God. Verse 42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. See, their rejection of Jesus was proof positive that they didn't love God, despite all their religious show and fanfare. 
Now, the, the phrase love of God grammatically could either mean the love that God had for them, as in they, didn't, they didn't, weren't experiencing God's love, or it could mean the love that they had for God, that they weren't loving God. And I think the context makes it clear that it's the latter, that they didn't have a love for God in them. Although they claim to love God, their love for man's praise made it clear that self was their God, not the Holy One of Israel. See, we know that they didn't love God because they were unable to recognize the one who stood before them who loved God supremely. Jesus demonstrated perfectly in his life what it looks like to love God. He did everything for the glory of God. He sought the glory of God alone. He submitted to him in all things. But this is precisely what the Jewish leaders hated about Jesus. They wanted somebody else. See, the love of God cannot reside into uh, in a heart that loves the praise of man because, and this is, this is key, because by definition, loving God means that you find your greatest satisfaction and delight in God getting all the glory and you standing and lowering yourself before him as a humble servant. That is the key re- change in regeneration. I would submit before you were saved, you pursued the praise of men, whether that was overtly in an opulent lifestyle or covertly in a secret desire, desire to be known for your philanthropy or your successful parenting or whatever it might be. After you came to Christ, however, your, what you now love is for God to receive the glory. And your motto is much like John the Baptist, he must increase and I must what decrease. That's right. Now, no Christian lives like this perfectly. No Christian lives like this perfectly. Yet we want to live more like this. But every Christian has a new heart bent, a new heart direction. And it's moving away from the praise that we can get for ourselves. And it's moving towards seeking the glory of God. But when you pursue man's praise, it only hardens your heart. It distances you from God. Why? Because you are seeking the praise of men, and God will only get in the way of your self-worship. And you'll become annoyed with God because he's constantly there, constantly requiring sincere praise and constantly standing worthy of it, and he will get in your way. So we need to, we need to know that a love for man's praise will harden our hearts towards God. Number four. Boy, I just feel like I could say every, every point is really, really important. This one's really, really important. Um, isn't that how it is when we read Jesus' words? Verse 43, a love for personal glory draws you to self-promoting leaders. A love for the praise of men draws you to self-promoting leaders. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Jesus came to earth, not seeking his own glory, not leaning on his own authority, not promoting himself, not creating his own agenda. In other words, Jesus did not come in his own name. Jesus came in the father's name, which meant that he was pursuing the father's glory, submitting to the father's authority and letting the father take care of promoting and endorsing his message and yielding to the agenda set by the father. You even see this in this passage here. 
earlier in what Peter read. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The incarnate son of God, worthy of all glory, possessing all authority in heaven and earth, humbled himself so that he could say, I can do nothing on my own. I mean, if that wasn't in the Bible, I would have a hard time believing it. You can do nothing on your own. What was Jesus exemplifying? God centered humility. This kind of Messiah was wholly unattractive, entirely unattractive to the Jewish leaders. Why? Well, we've already talked about it a little bit. Why was he so unattractive? Why was he the kind of leader that they did not want? Well, let's ask this question. What kind of leader would they like? What kind of leader would they cling to? When a person is bent on receiving personal glory and the praise of men, they are drawn to this kind of leader, namely one like this. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. If another leader comes along, and promotes himself and places his opinion over the word of God and flatters the Jewish leaders and walks with a swagger, you'll, they will be more than ready to follow someone like that. Why? Why? Because that's the kind of person that they want to be. It's a natural following. It just leads in that direction. They just see it and they just want to go in that direction. They want to be that kind of person. Now, I have to apply this to our contemporary situation because I just see it all over. Why is it that so many professing Christian Christians are filling massive churches pastored by charismatic, self-promoting, opinion-elevating leaders who give little attention to the word of God? Why are so many professing Christians enamored with big-name preachers and flashy ministries? Because that kind of demeanor and that lifestyle and that ministry resonates with God, with people's glory seeking hearts. Deep down, many of the people populating these churches are drawn to these leaders because they want to be that kind of person. But this is absolutely deadly, as Jesus points out in the next verse. Let's go to verse 44 now. Verse 44. A love for personal glory makes faith in Christ impossible. A love for the praise of men makes faith in Jesus impossible. We see that in the rhetorical question that Jesus asks. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? The Jewish leaders didn't believe in Jesus. And the reasons they didn't, reason they didn't believe in Jesus is because they were unable to believe in Jesus. And why were they unable to believe in Jesus? Because they were sold out for the glory that came from men. Verse, uh, verses um, 5 and 6, I believe it is. I just wrote Matthew 23. Matthew 23 goes like this. Verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. These kind of religious accoutrements that make it appear as... Though they have great religious accomplishments, 
They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They loved this status. But this kind of bent towards man's praise and the glory that came from others made faith in Jesus impossible. And I'm not using that. That's not a throwaway word. It didn't make faith improbable. It didn't make faith difficult. It made faith impossible. The Pharisees could not believe in Jesus while they are presently seeking the glory and praise and recognition of others. Now, these principles are first directed, I believe, to the Pharisees and by extension to unbelievers. But there's an underlying principle here that must be applied to believers. And it's this faith in Christ is impossible when you're bent in getting glory for yourself to the degree that we are seeking the praise of others to that degree. Will we be unable to believe in Jesus to that degree? Will our ability to rightly interpret the scriptures be hindered to that degree? Will a relational distance begin to form between us and the savior we will be more susceptible to proud, self-promoting leaders and our faith will be weak and anemic. Although genuinely converted, true Christians can begin to walk in patterns of pride and that will greatly hinder their walk with the Lord. And that is the warning for us today here. And if you don't think that this can't happen to you because you're not some big celebrity pastor or you don't have a Twitter account, or you're not all over Instagram boasting about your latest uh, excursion, you're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. Pride is native to the human heart, and it must be regularly put to death by the power of the Spirit. This text is for all of us because the flesh loves to be exalted. It thrives on it. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a series of questions, actually. Are you struggling with doubts about the Christian faith and lacking clarity on issues, important issues of truth? Anybody here like that today? Do you constantly find yourself spiritually dry, lacking in passion for God, lacking in real heartfelt worship? Is there a lack of power against sin in your life? Are you finding prayer to be constantly lifeless and cold? Could it be? Could it be? that you have left the faith-killing sin of pride to go unchecked in your heart and life. And if you have, I don't entirely blame you. You rarely find this kind of teaching in books about developing your spiritual life. Make sure that you are putting to death pride because it will kill your faith in Jesus. Ask yourself, could it be that you have been walking unwittingly and habitually in patterns of glory seeking that have poisoned the roots of your faith in Christ? Jesus says here that that's what pride does. It cuts at the very root of faith. Your walk with Christ and your spiritual vitality comes through faith and faith is cut off by glory seeking. This text is for all of us. Let me just give you a few examples. If you are one who is seeking to make a name for yourself with your business, in your community, even in your church, you're cutting at the very root of your faith. It's possible to seek the praise of men even in the church. 
even as a spiritual leader, even as a pastor, even as a preacher. Moms, if you're seeking the praise and recognition of other mothers, you are cutting at the very root of your faith. Men, if you are pining after the praise and recognition of other leaders in the church, your peers or fellow employees or your employer, you are cutting at the very root of your faith. Even things that we think are small and inconsequential, perhaps even posting on social media for the deep down purpose of making ourselves appear praiseworthy in some respects can erode the heart. As Jesus tells us, the love of man's praise will hinder faith. And when faith is hindered, our spiritual lives are hindered. Faith is the means by which we walk with God and grow in his word. Finally, if you want the world to respect your theology, if you must have the world respect your spiritual convictions, if you have to have the world pat you on the back and tell you what a good person you are, you'll never come to Jesus. You'll never come to Jesus. Why? Because the world would always hate true Christian faith and practice. At some point, you have to be able to be willing to bear the brunt of people's animosity due to your Christian character and conduct. If you are unwilling to deny yourself and bear the reproach for Christ's sake, you will not be able to believe in him. There's no two ways around this text. There's no two ways. There's, there's only one way, and it's to bow in humility before God or our faith will be hindered now it doesn't stop here though our passage doesn't stop here with Jesus's rhetorical question he gives us yet another insight and we'll close with this he rebukes notice he rebukes the religious leaders for where they're getting their glory but watch what he says this is interesting how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. And if I were writing the Bible, I might say, don't you mean the seeking the glory of God? We know that that's a biblical pursuit, pursuing the glory of God. Jesus here instead juxtaposes two kinds of glory seeking, two kinds of glory receiving. You can either receive glory from man or you can receive it from god we were made to seek the glory that comes from god we were made to seek the glory that comes from god what does this look like what does this mean faith is enabled when we place our hope on the praise that comes from our creator and our master in eternity rather than the praise that comes from people in this life. The way to keep faith in Jesus alive and fresh and healthy is by fixing your hope for recognition and praise on the God of the universe. And now that might sound strange to some of us, but it's entirely biblical. It's entirely biblical. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, that you are to labor diligently with what he has given you, what he has entrusted to you. Why? So that you will hear someday, well done, good and faithful servant. 
even Paul, in correcting the thinking of the religious leaders who relied upon external marks of religion rather than the inward change and reality of relationship with the living God, he describes true religion like this. Listen, this is from Romans chapter 2. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, not by the spirit, or by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. The difference between the religious person and the genuine believer is who they are seeking their praise from. Are you seeking praise from the Lord? Are you seeking praise from man? When we live for the words, well done, good and faithful servant, from Jesus, our master, we will make decisions and conduct ourselves in this life in a way that may appear unsatisfying, unfulfilling, and even foolish by the world's standards. But in our hearts, we will be satisfied in Christ and all that he is for us. See, the problem for the, the Jewish leaders was a glory problem. Were they going to seek the glory that came from men or were they going to seek the glory that came from their one and only God and creator. But we can only ever hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. You can only ever hear them if you are first united to the one who always and ever pleased God. See, Jesus is not merely an example of humility. He was the one who fulfilled all of humility's requirements in your place. And when you are united to him, his righteousness becomes yours. Not because it is infused in you somehow mystically, but because it is is credited to your account. God justifying you, declaring you righteous, not because you are inherently, but because Jesus is and you are united to him by faith. And when you are united to him, He gives you his spirit so now you can walk in patterns of faithfulness. Patterns of putting sin to death. Even the sin of pride. And as you walk in these patterns of faithfulness and you fulfill God's will and call on your life. You prepare yourself to someday hear, well done, good and faithful servant. When we put that as the centerpiece of our lives and as the aim and goal of our lives to please our master and our savior, it will cut at the root of pride. It will enable faith to flow and to be healthy and to flourish. But if we let pride go unchecked and if we set ourselves on a trajectory of glory seeking from others, we will only end up in disaster. It is no coincidence that the people in my life who have gone astray, who have walked away from the Lord, who said they want nothing to do with Jesus Christ, that pride and the desire for man's praise was at the center of their apostasy. They could not bear the reproach of Christ. They could not bear being a humble servant before the Lord. Let's take Jesus's words to heart Let us pursue God-centered humility in Christ so that someday we will hear the words, well done, 
good and faithful servant. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the wisdom of Jesus. What a text. It, it destroys us in a good, good way. It humbles us. It helps us to see how pride is such an enemy to our faith. It cuts us off from you. It cuts us off from intimacy with Jesus. It cuts us off from fruitfulness. It cuts us off from faithfulness. It skews our interpretation of Scripture. God, would you open our eyes to where pride might be taking an upper hand in our life? Help us by the Word of God and the Spirit and by the help of your church and our brothers and sisters begin to put this sin to death. And as we do that, would you cause our faith to flourish and to grow and to bear fruit? Would you draw us near to you and near to intimacy with Jesus Christ. And I ask all of these things for his glory and for our benefit in Jesus' name. Amen.